Go ahead and go in our Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, we're going to be in the 21st cha- 22nd chapter of Genesis here in just a few moments. Abraham, or Abram as he's referred to in this passage of Scripture, is one of those earth-changing, earth-shattering, earth-moving individuals in the Word of God. Certain men moved an entire nation, the nation of Israel. They moved God's people. But as far as changing the world, uh, you'll find that there are three men that changed the world. And this is... This is, of course, uh, a subject to debate, but in my opinion, the three men that changed the world the most, two of them in the Old Testament, one, of course, being in the New Testament, they are two men, uh, three men that all have their announcement of their birth at the end of a genealogy. At the end of a genealogy, early on in the book of Genesis, that genealogy ends with the birth of a man by the name of Noah. And no one can argue that Noah, the heir of the righteousness which is by faith, changed the entire world. With his faithfulness and finding grace in the eyes of the Lord, when the rest of the world was doing only evil exceedingly, it was Noah that stayed faithful and preached 120 years and built that ark and followed the Lord's command. And God put him and his family in the ark and then shut the door and the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Of course, our Savior in the New Testament, his birth is announced at the end of two different genealogies, one from his mother's side and one from Joseph's side. But the man that we look at tonight, Abraham or Abram, again, as he's referred to in this passage of Scripture, is first introduced to us in Genesis chapter 11 at the end of a genealogy. And just like so many other characters in the Word of God, uh, the Bible is going to tell us about Abraham's great victories and tell us about his great failures. It's going to tell us that this man has feet of clay and makes mistakes. That's how we're introduced to him in chapter 12 when the Lord gives him three things to do. He says, get thee up out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. Abraham turns around and gets out of his country and takes some kindred from his father's house with him. So even in the first three commandments that Abraham hears he obeys only one of them and disobeys two after a while we find him then in the next chapter or at the end of that chapter sojourning down into the land of Egypt in this place filled with uh, with lust and lying as he goes down there and tells the Pharaoh that his wife Sarah isn't his wife it's his sister and Pharaoh lusts after her it's amazing that this man that had just heard that promise just so shortly before that God said I will bless him that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee when he went down into Egypt which you and I know is a picture of the world, when he goes down into Egypt, he begins to doubt the promises of Almighty God and thinks he has to lie to protect Sarah. The more you live in the world, the more you'll doubt Almighty God and his promises and his word. God delivers them. They come back. And then we watch as Abraham's life continues. He continues to grow. He defeats Kedorlaomer and those kings that had captured the five cities there, including Sodom and Gomorrah and taken his nephew Lot, uh, taken his nephew Lot hostage. We've watched as he pled with Almighty God back and forth about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We watch as he, as Brother Tozier talked about, as he kind of wheeled and dealed with God from 50 all down to 10. My Tension has always been this, that the reason Abraham stopped at 10 was he was sure there were going to be 10 people there because there was Lot and his wife and his virgin daughters. And the Bible says that he had sons. That's at least two. And the Bible says that he had sons-in-law which means two sons-in-law and two daughters that were married. So in other words, Lot had ten members of his family. And Abraham says, I'm just going to keep negotiating with God until I get it down to just Lot's family. But Lot didn't even lead his family to believe in Jehovah. When he's given a second chance, he didn't even lead his grandsons to believe in Jehovah. And they became founders, if you will, of two idol-worshipping uh, idol nations in the Word of God. We watch as Abraham continues to serve the Lord. He continues to grow. He continues to, to get all the tests and the trials and the tribulations that come into his life. 
we watch is there are multiple conversa- conversations between Abraham and as he's formerly called Abram and Almighty God throughout the Word of God. I've counted them up and I'm not sure, I don't remember whether the number is 17 or 19, different conversations with Almighty God. Do you know every conversation that God has with Abraham throughout the Word of God until you come to Genesis chapter 22 has one significant thing in common. Every conversation God has with Abraham includes a promise. Either a brand new promise that he's just giving him or a reiteration of an old promise. Every time God talks to Abraham, he gives him a promise. And those promises, I've divided them into four different categories. Some are about his person. God has promised Abraham that he will make his name great. He has promised him that he will bless him. He has promised him a long life and he has promised him that he will die in peace. He has made Abraham promises about his person. He has made Abraham promises about his protection. He has promised that he will be his shield. He has promised he will be his reward. He has promised that he will curse him that curseth thee. He has made him promises about his protection and about his person. He has also made him promises about his possessions. He has promised that he is going to give him all the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. He has promised he's going to give him as he took him up on that mountain after Lot left him there in Genesis chapter 20. Uh, chapter 13 and he says look to the north the south the east and the west and every place you see I'm going to give it to you he has promised he's going to give him all the land every piece of land that the sole of his foot touches he has promised he is going to give him the land of the Kenites the Jebusites the Hivites the Perizzites the Amorites and the Canaanites so God has made promises about Abraham's person about his possessions, about his protection. And then here's a 50 cent word for you that just goes with the alliteration. He's made him promises about his progeny, about his descendants, hasn't he? He said his descendants will bless the entire earth. And in these shall all families of the earth be blessed, he promised. He said his descendants would be like the dust of the earth as the stars in the heavens. He has changed Abram's name to Abraham, meaning the father of many nations. By the way, just for the sake of mentioning this, you will see people and hear people that say that Abraham is the father of many religions. That is not in the least bit, not at all, not one little percentage true. He is the father of nations He's not the father of any religions. The truth of the matter is, God has made him all of these promises. He's told him that his, his, this is all going to take place through the womb of his aged wife, Sarah. And even as they've gotten older and older and older, they've clung to this promise. They believe this promise. But then after a while, they started to do the math. They started to figure out things. They started to put human reasoning into the promise of Almighty God. And they came to the conclusion that they were going to help God. (laughs) Listen, Christian, he doesn't need your help to answer your prayers. It's just that simple. They're going to help God. And so Sarah gives Abraham her handmaid, Hagar. And Hagar conceives a son by the name of Ishmael. See, Ishmael is not where the promises were made. God, not one single promise had been made before Ishmael's birth about the birth of Ishmael. It's not Ishmael through which God is going to fulfill all the promises that he's made to Abraham. Ishmael is the product of lust. Isaac is the product of a great love story, isn't he? Ishmael's the product of doubt, where Isaac is the product of deliverance. Ishmael is a mistake. (laughs) Isaac is a miracle. So we watch Ishmael, and Ishmael is finally rejected, and he leaves. And now Abraham's family is back in order. Isaac has been born. God's promises have been fulfilled. Abraham is now old. By the way, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 22, and I hate to argue with every single flannel graph creator in the history of human beings. By the way, everybody in a flannel graph has a beard, including the women. And in every flannel graph, you're going to see Isaac looks like this little 13-year-old boy. If you just read the passage of Scripture, you're probably going to come to the conclusion that Isaac is at least in his 20s and may actually be in his early 30s by the time this passage of Scripture takes place in Genesis chapter 22. Isaac is growing up. He's a man now. He no longer needs to be watched. 
Ishmael is gone. Sarah is happy. You can probably hear her singing around the house every day because every promise that God has made, no matter how many times they question it, no matter how many, uh, how many times they doubt it, every promise that God has made is true. They can look in any direction and all of that land was theirs. All the promises about Abraham's descendants are going to be fulfilled through this son Isaac. And we watch as all of that takes place. And it's now time for good old Abraham, this old war horse for the Lord, to sit on the front porch in a rocking chair and watch the sunset, uh, uh, watch the sunset in the west every single day and just take it easy in Zion and retire. But that's not what God had planned. God is going to test Abraham. God is going to test Abraham by one way of looking at it in a way that none of us in this room have been tested. But in another way, as we look at it tonight, you'll find out that he's actually being tested just exactly like all of us will be tested. I'm here to say this, and I'm just as honest as I can, and I rely on the Scripture where it says, He will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able. God has never tempted me the way He's going to tempt or test Abraham. Old Testament used the word tempt. We'll go there in just a moment. But it's going to be a test. We understand the difference in the New Testament word for tempt and the Old Testament word used here for tempt. God's never tempted or tested me the way He's going to test Abraham. On one side of me, I think, well, that's wonderful. That's great. I'm so glad I don't have to face that test. On the other side, I have to say, wait a minute. He's never tested me that way because he knows I wouldn't pass. Abraham is going to be tested in a way that causes us all to feel uneasy, a little uncomfortable. All of us will sit here and we'll read this passage of Scripture here in just a moment. We're going to say, why would the Lord do that to somebody? Why would the Lord ask Abraham to do this? What a bloodthirsty God he is. You'll actually hear people say things like that. I will point this out before we even begin. There's not an ounce of truth in that either. We'll do so much better if we just stick to the Word of God instead of what people say about the Word of God. I want you to look at this passage of Scripture, but if you're going to test this man, Abraham, this late in his life, let's put it this way, it's going to have to be a doozy, isn't it? I mean, you can't just test him with just some regular testing. Abraham, I want you to give up everything and leave your home. Nope, I already did that. Abraham, I want you to put your life on the line and go and fight for the cause. And Abraham, Nope, I already did that. Abraham, I want you to separate from everybody that you're supposed to separate from. Nope, I already did that. How are you going to test Abraham? You've already tested him by his family. You've already tested him by his possessions. You've already tested him by his life. You've tested him in every single way. But God is going to test him in a way that takes our breath away. I want you to look at the testing that we find here in Genesis chapter 22. And I want you to follow along with me. And I want to ask you a question tonight. And it's the title of the message. We heard the ensemble sing this uh, part of this song this morning when they sang, Is your all on the altar? Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass after these things, this is after Isaac's birth and after the, Abraham has sojourned in, uh, the, in the Philistines' land for many days, since several years have gone by, after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Once again, the New Testament says that God will not tempt any man. And it's talking about tempting to sin. God does not tempt anyone to sin. But in this passage of Scripture, he's going to test Abraham's faith. The Old Testament, the Hebrew word here for tempt could, uh, is also the, uh, uh, the word that could be translated test. It's just meaning that God is not tempting him to sin, not trying to entice him to do the wrong thing. He's testing Abraham's faith. And said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, Here I am. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. And get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham arose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. But on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac his son, and 
He took the fire in his hand and the knife, and they went both of them together. Then in verse 7, you're going to see something that Abraham, being a human being, just like me and you, had to have been afraid of for the last three days. You're going to find Isaac asking the question. And Isaac spake unto Abraham, his father. He said, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire in the wood. Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both of them together. They came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham, Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, uh, stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Let's have a word of prayer before I ask you the question here on the last night of this revival. Is your all on the altar? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you once again for our time gathered together here to listen to the preaching of the word, have the Bible envelop our minds for the next few moments. Father, let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and convict us and guide us. Lord, I ask that you continue to bless throughout the remainder of this year. I ask that you continue to bless the faculty and the students. But Father, may this night be a night that focuses our attention to where it needs to be for the entire semester, not just for a week or two. But Father, help there to be changes in lives tonight that will change the course of entire nations. Father, have your will in your way in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice the passage begins in verses 1 and 2 with a call to sacrifice. The Lord comes to Abraham and he offers this test to Abraham, this doozy of a test to Abraham. I want you to notice that the first thing that the Lord did, I want you to notice the demand that he makes in this call to sacrifice. He makes a demand and the demand at first is for something that God has provided. Do you know when Abraham and Sarah watched little Isaac as he began to toddle, they did not sit there and say, boy, I sure am glad that medical science finally has progressed to the place that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman who had ceased to be after the manner of women could have a child. Boy, I sure am glad we had such good doctors and such good scientists. I so, am so happy that uh, some, some witch doctor or something along the way prayed for us. They couldn't say any of that. Every time they saw Isaac every day that they laid their eyes on him as he grew up from a child to a young man now every day they looked at their son they had to in their own heart say thank you Lord it was something that they could not have gotten from anyone else in any other way it is something that without any question or any hesitation had been provided by almighty God it is a gift from God that he had handed to Abraham and Sarah Here's one of our problems, and once again, I'm not saying one of your problems is one of our problems. We look at things like that and say, boy, oh boy, that was a gift from God. And sometimes we fail to realize that every single thing in our life is a gift from God. Every blessing and every trial is a gift from God. If you have your school bill paid or if you don't, it's a gift from God. If you're on the dean's list or if you're on the list that's on the other end of the dean's list. I don't even know if they have a name for that list. They would call it the Marco list or something like that. <laughs> Brother Marco and I have been friends for a long, long, long time. Long before he ever came here. So I can do that if I want to. He knows I'm picking. But the truth of the matter is, no matter where you are, it's all from God. Everything you have is from Almighty God. 
And when God asks you to give, He's not asking you to give of your abundance. He's asking you to return what He has already given you. See, the Lord does ask us to give. The Lord does ask us to tithe. The Lord does ask us to give offerings. The Lord does insist that we support missions. The Lord offers promises for all of those things. And we act as if God is a giant bully in heaven that wants so much of my income. No, no. We are fortunate that He doesn't ask for 99.7% of it. It was all His. He gave every single thing to us. So the Lord says to Abraham, take now thy son. Isn't that wonderful the way the Lord words that? You know, even though we would acknowledge that everything we have is from the Lord. If you're, if you're a, a, a husband or a wife in the auditorium and you get up on Sunday morning, you, you, you could say that I'm going to go into the room that the Lord has given me inside the house that God has given me and I'm going to wake up the children that God has given me and I'm going to tell them to put on the clothes that God has given them and then we're, they're going to get dressed and we're going to get in the car that God has given us and go to the church where God has led us so I can hear the pastor that God has given me preach the word of God that God has given me and I can get right with the Lord. That's what we could say and we would be accurate in every single one of those steps. What we usually say is, I'm going to wake up, go in my kid's room, wake my kids up, tell them to put on their clothes, get in our car and drive to our church and hear our pastor preach. Because even though we acknowledge that it was all given to us by God, once He gives it to us, do we not then take ownership of it? That's where we get in trouble sometimes because we'll say to the Lord, you can't have this, Lord. It's, It's mine. It's something that God has provided. It's not only something that God has provided. Notice what he said. Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. It's not only something that God has provided. It's something that is now personal, isn't it? It's now been made Abraham's. He doesn't say, Abraham, take the son that I gave you and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'm going to tell you about. He doesn't say, kiss the wife that I gave you and say goodbye as you go to offer the son that I gave you on the mountain that I've created as a burnt offering. He doesn't say that. He says, take thy son, thine only son. The Lord seems to drive the message home, does he not? He mentions it right here, thy only son. See, God, when God asks us for something, even though we have already internalized it, it made it personal, It's still his. It still belongs to him. Every fiber of your being, every moment of your day, every love in your heart belongs to him. Notice, he asks Abraham, this demand is for something that God has provided. It's something that Abraham has made personal. But it's also, notice this carefully, please. It's also something about which Abraham is passionate. Now, how many of you have already had hermeneutics? Raise your hand. Hold your hand high in the air if you've had hermeneutics. When you took hermeneutics, I'm pretty sure you learned the same thing that I learned about hermeneutics. One of the things you learned about, who teaches hermeneutics, by the way? Dr. Lucan. I'm sure you taught them about the first mentioned principle, didn't you? And, and you, you, it's, a, it's a, a, big, a big tent pole as we study the Word of God. As we look at that first mention of something in the Word of God, first mention of a sacrifice in the Word of God is when God shed the blood of an animal to put coats of skin on, Abraham, on Adam and Eve. And uh, uh, that's the, uh, the first time that a sacrifice was offered was to cover the sins of mankind. And that's what sacrifices were always for throughout the remainder of the Word of God. You understand that's what the first mention principle is. And we could go longer into it. I'm sure in your class, you're going to have a whole lot more study than just that one brief statement that I made. But did you know in Genesis chapter 22, there are two first mentions in the word of God. The first mention of the word worship is right here in this passage of scripture. When Abraham says to those two young men that are with him, you stay here. I and the lad are going to go yonder, go up on top of the mountain and sing some choruses. No, we're going up on top of the mountain and worship. I'm going to go up on top of that mountain and sacrifice to Almighty God. I'm going to sacrifice the thing that is the most dear to me on top of that mountain. I'm going to give it to Almighty God. We have let the world control our terminology and now we have our praise and worship time and it's always about singing. No, 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 no. Worship is about sacrificial giving. That's what its first mention is. And that's what it means every time it's used in the New Testament. It's always having to do with a sacrificial gift. But there's a second first mention. Did you notice this? Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. 
Do you realize the first mention of the word love in the entire word of God isn't describing God's love for mankind? It's not saying that when God created everything and put it in the garden and he said it was good and he loved Adam. It's not after the Lord had slain that animal and he covered them, uh, covered their sin and their nakedness with those coats of skin that he said, even though they sin, I still love them. It's not when Noah and his family got out of the ark that God said, I've had to start over, but I want you to know, Noah, that I love you. No, no, the first mention of the word love in the entire word of God is, the, uh, is, a, uh, is about a paternal love for a son. <laughs> Here's why that's a blessing to me. Because every time you read where God says that we're his children, you know what it's really saying? I love you. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. I love you. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. I love you. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, then have ye power to become the sons of God. Hey, I love you. Every time he describes himself as our father and us as his children, using that first mentioned principle from here in Genesis chapter 22, what he's really saying over and over and over again is not just about a relationship. It's about an emotion. It's that I love you. He says, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. God says, I want you to give your life to me. No, 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 no. I know you gave it to me, Lord, but it, it's mine now. I know. He wants that which is personal. But Lord, you don't understand. I'll give you this and I'll give you this and I'll give you this. But there are some things that I want to do. Some things that are so important to me. Some things that make me tick. Some things about which I'm passionate. I can't give you those things. No, no. That's what God is asking Abraham to give. And that's what he's asking every single one of us to give. Those things that you love more than him... Those are the things that you have to give up if you're ever going to serve Him. If you're ever going to completely surrender, you have to give up those things that control those hidden chambers of your heart, those things that you love so much that they not only rival but exceed your love for God. Don't you think it would have been an easy thing for Abraham to say, all right, Lord, I've given you my place where I lived in the Ur of Chaldees. I've left all my family behind. I've been all alone. I've watched Lot turn his back on me. I've watched Hagar and Ishmael walk away. I've had all of these trials and tribulations. And Lord, I passed every one of them. But Lord, this is way too much. My son Isaac, you want me to give him to you? Lord, you know how much I love him. You know how much he means to me. And the Lord seems to even make sure he, Abraham knows that he knows. Thine only son, whom thou lovest. I have to be honest. It would have at least crossed my mind to say, Lord, I've passed a lot of tests. If I were Abraham, but I'm just going to fail this one, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. You know, I love you. You know, I want to serve you, but Lord, you've asked for too much. I just can't do this. Notice the demand. It was something that God had provided. It was something that was personal. It was something about which Abraham was passionate. But I want you to notice, not just the uh, the demand, but notice the duration. And I remember watching online one time as my, my wife's uncle, Ron White, was preaching here several years ago. I don't, I don't think I was here. I think I remember listening to it online. And he was preaching about this passage of Scripture, and he pointed something out. You notice what it says, please. Let's look at verse 2 again, please. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the, mount, the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now, it is my personal belief that Abraham did not say after hearing this from the Lord, all right, Lord, I'm going back to sleep now. I believe there's a sleepless night here in 120-year-old Abraham's life right before our very eyes. Notice the next verse, though. Watch what it says. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of the young men with him, and Isaac, his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering. And rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. 
certainly seems to me that this conversation with Almighty God lasted longer than just God's original request from Abraham, his original test from Abraham. It seems that this man that was so adept at negotiating with God there about Sodom and Gomorrah might have asked a question or two. Might have wanted a little bit more information because when he's first told, it's go to the place and I'll tell you about it later. And he wakes up the next morning, he knows where he's going. And when he sees the mountain, he knows where the mountain is. I think Abraham discussed this with Almighty God all night long. Maybe he didn't. Maybe his faith was so strong that he just rolled over and went back to sleep. I believe that the Lord continues to talk to Abraham. And tells him, all right, here's where you're going. And I think at the end of the sleepless night, Abraham gets up the next morning. Let's be honest, all of us in the auditorium. When is Abraham going to leave you behind? When he got up the next morning and started cutting the wood? When he got up the next morning and began to saddle the donkey? When he got up the next morning and made sure the knife was good and sharp. And he headed toward Moriah. Boy, he left Jonah behind, didn't he? Jonah would have gone the other direction, would he not? Jonah would have turned and gone down and down and down. And you've heard that message time and time again. But Abraham got up and went. He got up the next morning. I have to tell you, I'm not sure I'd have gotten up. I'm sure I, I might have just rolled over and said, listen, I'm not doing this one, Lord. I'm sorry. You know, if Abraham had said no here, he still would have been a patriarch. He still would have been a servant of almighty God's. We'd still tell stories about him. But Abraham gets up, saddles the donkey, and starts out. After tossing and turning and talking to the Lord all night long, now Abraham is on his way to this place called Moriah. You've listened to lectures over the years. You've tossed and turned, wondering whether you can give God what He's asked. You've sat in services and listened to chapel speakers and listened to your own pastor back at home. And they preached and God is tugging on your heart. And He says, give me what I've given you. Give me what is personal to you. Give me what you hold so dear. I want it. And you toss and you turn and you argue with Almighty God. And you go back and forth and you say, no, no, no. I don't want to do that, Lord. There's the sleepless night, but then... There's the silent journey. Notice how the Bible covers this because this part really just completely amazes me. Notice that verse 3. He gets up, he gets the wood, gets the people, and he went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. You know what's missing there? Can you imagine how heavy Abraham's footsteps were? See, God hasn't... Please understand when I say this, let me explain before you think, well, that's a crazy statement, Brother Harper. God didn't just ask Abraham for Isaac. Did he? He asked Abraham for everything. What does Abraham have left? Oh yes, all the land that his foot has touched. Oh, it's all going to be his. But if Isaac is dead, if Isaac is sacrificed on top of that mountain in Mount Moriah, there's no one to leave the land to. There's no, there's no dust, uh, 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 descendants as the sand of the sea and the stars of the heavens. There's no blessing all the families of the earth. If Isaac is dead, how's he going to die in peace knowing that he took his own son's life? How's he going to live any longer after this and not be brokenhearted and so filled with grief? that his life comes to a shorter end. Everything that God has ever promised Abraham falls apart when he sacrifices Isaac. God's asked him for everything. Oh, no, no, he hasn't, Brother Harper. I think you're wrong about that. I think you're misunderstanding. God hasn't asked him for Sarah. Sarah loved him. She called him Lord. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Abraham's going to get up. He's going to take that son that they prayed for, that they longed for, and that they waited for. And for three days, they're going to journey to Mount Moriah. Then he's going to take him up on top of a mountain and offer him not as a sacrifice. By the way, read what it says, as a burnt offering. And then six days after he leaves, Abraham's silhouette is going to come over the hillside. And Sarah is going to see him. And she's going to run out to see her husband. And she's going to say, hi, honey, I'm glad you're home. Where's Isaac? Can you imagine the moment 
that Abraham has to look his wife that he loves with all of his heart in her eye and say, honey, I killed him. She's going to ask that question, isn't she? She's going to ask the question that everyone would ask in that moment. She's going to say, why? Why, honey? Why would you do that? The Lord gave him to us. And he's going to say, well, the Lord told me to offer him. And then she's going to ask what every mother in the entire world would ask. Well, can I at least see his body? And he's going to say, honey, all that's left are some ashes on top of a mountain three days from here. There's nothing left of the promises of God. How long, and ladies, I'll speak to you for just a moment. How long could any woman have continued to trust her husband after that? Don't you think there might have even been moments of doubt? Sarah's already prone to doubt. That's why she gave Hagar to her husband. Do you think Sarah would have walked away singing a happy tune that God has taken away everything that he has given them over the last 50 years of their life? God's asked Abraham for everything. And he still got up. He still cut the wood. He still sharpened the knife. Can you imagine that first day? How heavy Abraham's steps are. Oh, I realize Abraham is a great man of God. I realize that he's the friend of God. I know all of that about him. But I also know he's a human being. He has blood running, running through his veins and air filling up his lungs and a heart that is broken because he is the only one and he can't share it with anyone. He's the only one that's knowing, that's going to know what's going to happen in three days. He's the only one knowing these are the last three days of Isaac's life. He's the only only one who knows Sarah didn't even get to say goodbye. That first day, can you imagine? As they stop and camp. And Abraham lies there with his eyes looking at the top of the tent. Sleep has completely left him. Just waiting to hear some kind of sign from heaven. Wouldn't you? The Lord doesn't say, Abraham, you're doing a good job. Good job on this first day. There's no record of that at all. It just talks about the three days. There's nothing mentioned about it. It's just three days of walking in the wilderness on your way to Mount Moriah. And every single day, there, there's no hallelujah chorus being played. The birds aren't singing sweet songs in the air. There's no rainbow in the sky. Water isn't being made out of the dust of the earth. No miracles are taking place. Nothing that would prove to Abraham that what he's doing is right. All he has to go by is the Word of God. And that's all you and I need. So many times we have a call on, of God on our life and we sit around and wait for some kind of fleece or some kind of miracle along the way and we're so quick to question Almighty God when things don't go exactly like we planned. Do you think the day before this conversation between Abraham and Almighty God that Abraham had any thought in his mind that he had three days left with his son? You think this was his plan? No, no, no. The only thing Abraham had to go on was the word of God. He knew what God had told him, and he's still going to do it. How much harder would that second day have been? Abraham, well over 100 years of age, a second day journey. Two young men and his 25, 30-year-old son going along. It's not near as much trouble for them to walk. Plus, they're probably sleeping pretty well at night, but Abraham's not. Second day, no shouts from heaven. No angels ministering to Abraham. Nothing. Just walking along, trudging in his silence, dreading what's going to happen tomorrow. That third day, every step that third day, the mountain gets closer. Every step on that third day, that's the place. Don't you think Abraham is doing what you and I would have done? And I realize this is supposition. I understand that. But don't you think Abraham is sitting there thinking, okay, Lord, have I gone far enough? 
Didn't Abraham outperform all of us in this auditorium when he left in the first place, or at least most of us when he left in the first place? And then at the end of the first day, when he got up the second day and continued on toward that mountain, didn't he leave behind most of the rest of us? And when he woke up that third day and keeps going right toward that mountain and he can see it getting closer and closer and closer with every single step, didn't he leave all of us behind? If the Lord had said, At the base of the mountain. Good job, Abraham. You can go home now. We'd still be telling this story, wouldn't we? It would still be an amazing story of faith, wouldn't it? There's not just the sleepless night. There's not just the silent journey, but then there's the steep climb. So much is made and so much conjecture about this passage of Scripture, about some of the things that Abraham says. Some things just are blatantly not, uh, not true, but other things, you know, we can, we can debate all day long. But he gets ready to go up the mountain and he hands Isaac the wood. Brother Tozier talked today about Uriah carrying the letter that was his death sentence in his hand. Isaac's carrying the wood that's going to burn his dead flesh to ashes. Abraham takes the knife. Can you imagine that moment that Abraham has feared almost as much as the moment on top of the mountain here in a few moments? And Isaac says, Dad? Yes, son. I see the fire. I see the wood. I know you got the knife, Dad. Where's the lamb? Before they'd started that way. Remember what Abraham told those servants? He said, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And you'll hear people say, well, that just proves that Abraham knew everything was going to be all right. We'll we'll go there in just a moment. Abraham didn't know that everything was going to be all right. Abraham trusted God that everything was going to be all right. But he he didn't know that he was not going to offer Isaac on top of this mountain. What would you have said if you were Abraham? And you're the only one on the entire planet who knew why you were going up this mountain. Would you look to those fellows and said, all right, guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take Isaac, who's 100 years younger than me, and we're going to go up the mountain and I'm going to sacrifice him. I'm going to take a very sharp knife and I'm going to slit his throat and watch as my son gags as he bleeds to death. And then I'm going to set his body on fire. What would those young men have said to Abraham? Are you sure? Why are you doing that, Abraham? And one thing I do know is this, Christian. When you're struggling, what you really don't want is someone to question whether your surrender is still what God wants. Don't you think Abraham wouldn't have needed very much of a push to come right down the mountain with Isaac? No, no, we're going up and we're coming back. Oh, Abraham wants to come back. And Abraham wants to come back with Isaac. Plus, he doesn't know if Isaac would just say, uh, wait, get that. I, I think I misunderstood something there. Did, did you just say, I'm the sacrifice? See ya. <laughs> they start to climb up, and that's when Isaac asked that question. And the Lord, then Abraham gives that answer, which has been so many times preached. My son, and you'll hear it even preached this way, and excuse me if I, I don't mean to offend anyone. God will provide himself a lamb. And they'll preach that as if Abraham is prophesying the death of Christ on the cross. Well, that's not it because read the rest of the words. For a burnt offering. Our Savior wasn't a burnt offering. He was a Passover lamb. There's a significant difference here. This is not Abraham prophesying anything. This is Abraham doing exactly what Hebrews chapter 11 says he was doing. He trusted His faith in God never wavered, but he did not know what God was going to do. You and I can say, I trust the Lord, but we do not know what he is going to do next. That's one of the problems with what we call the health wealth preachers. They make it sound like we can tell God what he's going to do next. That's not the case. I just trust him that all things will work together for good. I can just trust him because he is the righteous judge. I just trust him. Whatever decision he makes, whatever he takes away and whatever he gives, that's him. 
I just trust him to always do the right thing. And by the way, just in case you missed the rest of that story, he always does do the right thing. Notice there's the call to sacrifice. This Abraham walking up that hill with his own son. Then there's the complete surrender. Now nothing is said about what happens at the top of the hill. But there had to be a time. Notice what it says. And they came to the place, verse 9, which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac thy seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figure. Abraham certainly believed that if Isaac died, God could raise him. But Abraham's intentions are to offer his son as a sacrifice, and it never says that he knew that God was going to raise him. But there had to be that moment, didn't there? Abraham is 100 years older than Isaac. Even if the flannel graphs are right and Isaac is only 13. You ever seen a 113-year-old man try to catch a 13-year-old teenager? (laughs) There had to be a moment when Abraham sat Isaac down. The altar is built. The fire is there. The stones are prepared. And Abraham says, son, you're the offering. But dad, I thought you said God would provide himself a lamb. Yes, son, he provided you. And I heard one preacher one time, and I think he meant well, and he may may be right, but I don't think so. He said, it is obvious from this passage of Scripture that Isaac surrendered. In the beautiful picture of our Savior who said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It is obvious that Isaac had to surrender because his dad could not have overpowered him and hogtied him and laid him on that altar. He said, I bet that made it easier for Abraham. You listen to me carefully. As a dad, I'm going to tell you this. That wouldn't make it easier. That would make it harder. Can you imagine saying, son, you're the sacrifice. And Isaac asking the question once again, why, Dad? Son, that's what God told me to do. Can you imagine the heart of Abraham when Isaac says, well, Dad, if that's what God wants, you probably ought to tie me up because I'd hate to struggle. I don't think that makes it easier. I think Abraham, as he's binding his son to lay him on that altar, is thinking, oh, wow. What a boy God gave me. What a son God has allowed me to raise. Boy, he can do so much for the Lord than I have ever done. I can only imagine what God would have done through him. He's even willing to be a sacrifice just because his dad told him that God said so. By the way, God hadn't told Isaac there's this complete surrender there's the call to sacrifice there's the complete surrender Abraham trusts God and Isaac trusts Abraham and there he is laying on the altar now there are no extra words in the word of God that are just thrown in to make it more exciting it certainly doesn't need that at all does it but I think there's an extra word that was uttered in this passage of scripture Now, you understand how it works. Again, we're going to go back to the flannel graph just for a second. Every single flannel graph has Isaac laying there as a 13-year-old and Abraham with a knife way up above his head like this. That is not at all how it would have happened. The sacrifice was made with one quick slice right here across the juggler. Abraham grabs the sharp knife and lays it at Isaac's neck, willing to do what comes next. And then he hears the call. Abraham, Abraham, it is my personal opinion. Please understand, I emphasize that. It is my personal opinion that the second Abraham was not necessary. I think it went like this. Hey, yes, sir. Abraham, Abraham. Don't do it, Abraham. Don't touch him. 
Don't hurt him. I want you to notice there was a call to sacrifice. There was complete surrender. And lastly, and we're finished. There was a comprehensive solution. This offering was prompt, wasn't it? It was at the exact moment. One second later, Abraham would have killed Isaac. There's no question about that from this passage of Scripture. One second earlier, you and I would have been saying, well, that was close, but, you know, I don't know if he would have offered or not. We could get into the debate, and I know in the dorms that debate will rage on and on about uh, if Abraham had killed Isaac, would God have raised Isaac from the dead, and on and on. Those kind of discussions have been going on for hundreds of years among Bible-believing Christians. And it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a waste of time conversation, but it's fun a little bit. But it's not going to solve anything, and you're never going to figure out anything. We don't know the answer. But it was at the exact moment. It's important for us to realize that God doesn't have a clock. A thousand years is as a day, and a day is a thousand years. And it might seem to you several times in your life, maybe even some this semester, but certainly after you leave here and after you're out there serving the Lord. And you hear this said all the time. Well, I, you think college is hard. Wait till you get out in the ministry. I will tell you there are struggles in the ministry, but I will tell you this as well. That sounds so terrible, doesn't it? Well, this is the best time of your life. It gets worse from here on out. That's not the case. You've heard two men preach to you this week that absolutely, positively, to the bottom of our souls, love what we're doing. I can promise you there are joys in the ministry. There are blessings in the ministry that God is going to answer prayers. But there are going to be times along the way where you're going to say, and you're going to look at your watch and you're looking at your calendar and you're saying, Lord, this looks like it's a little late to me. Understand this. He's never been late one single time. It's always going to happen on his time. It might not happen on yours. Don't you think Abraham would have been just as happy if God had said one day into the journey, Abraham, Abraham, don't offer Isaac, go home. (laughs) At the exact moment when Abraham's complete faith is evident for all to see for all eternity, God says, Abraham, Abraham, don't touch him. Don't do it. The offering was prompt. Notice, secondly, please watch this. The offering was provided. There's a ram. Now, I heard a preacher preach one time. There's, there are a lot, there's lots of preaching from this passage of Scripture, right? And sometimes it's, 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 all, it's, it's speculation. And there's even some speculation in this message tonight. But this preacher preached that while Abraham and Isaac were climbing the mountain on this side, that this ram was climbing the mountain on this side. And that may be the case. My personal belief is that since the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, the Offering was already prepared before Adam and Eve sinned. I think the ram's been there for a few days now, don't you? I think the ram was there before the Lord spoke to Abraham and said, uh, go and offer up thy son, thine only son, Isaac. We could debate. That's one of those other things we could debate forever when the ram got there. I don't know when the ram got there, but I do know it was provided by Almighty God. The answer was already there before God offers up the test. Wouldn't that be a great thing if every teacher gave you the answer to every single test? I will give you this little piece of information. That's what the class lectures are. (laughs) Notice the offering was provided. The offering was prompt. The offering was perfect. Don't you love this? There is a phrase in this passage of Scripture that if you took it out or if you changed it in any way, the whole passage falls apart, doesn't it? And by the way, for those that preach that Isaac was a picture of the Savior, and of course he is in some areas, the real picture of the Savior in this passage of Scripture is this ram caught in the thicket. But then there's those three words. By his horns. 
Do you know if it said this, lamb, this ram was caught in the thicket by his thigh or by his shoulder or by his stomach or by his neck? Do you know what those thistles would have done? This thicket would have done to this ram? It would have marred him. It would have scratched him. It would have, it would have spotted him. In other words, he would not have been a pure sacrifice. There's only one, pl- one way that the Lord could put that ram in that thicket so that when the ram came out of that thicket, he is still a spotless and without blemish and without guile and without without mark uh, uh, a sacrifice and that's if he catches him by his horns (laughs) isn't it wonderful how the bible has the answer to every question before you even think to ask it this perfect sacrifice there already in the thicket by the way the whole time abraham's been working on the, uh, on the altar. And by the way, the whole time he's been having this conversation and binding and laying Isaac on the altar, the ram's just sitting there in complete silence. <laughs> they would have heard a struggling ram, would they not? Had he been braying or whatever sound rams make, had he been doing that, they would have heard that the whole time. I liken that to that verse, and as, his, as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he opened up not his mouth. The offering was provided. The offering was perfect. The offering was prompt. And then the offering was presented. (laughs) Can you imagine the excitement in Abraham's heart now? Get that ram out, Abraham. Offer him. And Abraham offers the sacrifice that God had always intended for Abraham to offer. See, here's one of our problems with this passage of Scripture and one of our problems with our Christian lives. We're constantly afraid that God's going to ask us to give up something that we don't want to give up. I'll use my wife sitting here as an example. When she was 12, I believe it was, the Lord laid on her heart at teen camp that she should surrender her life completely to the Lord. But she did not do so. Do you know why? She was afraid that if she did, God would call her to Africa. My wife is so afraid of snakes that it is literally comical. All right. My daughter, when she was taking, when she was homeschooling, she would take her science book and whatever other book that she would have. She would go through the entire book on the first day of the year, strum every single page and see if there was a picture of a snake. And if there was a picture of a snake, she would cover it with a post-it note because my wife is not only afraid of snakes on the ground in front of her, she's afraid of snakes in a book. She's afraid of, of, of stuffed animal snakes at an amusement park. If you understand what I'm saying, she is definitely afraid of snakes it was the next year she went back to camp and that year she surrendered completely to go wherever the Lord called her to go do you know what the Lord didn't do he didn't call her to Africa I think she would go she'd just never leave the house but I want you to remember this from this passage of scripture we look at this and we say wow Wow, oh wow, wow. Look what the Lord asked Abraham to do. I'm glad the Lord didn't ask me to do that. I'll tell you the story of a businessman in Tennessee. Like the, the rich young ruler, he had much possessions. And always struggled. He was always afraid that if he surrendered to the Lord, the Lord was going to ask him for everything that he'd ever made. Till finally he gave it up. He walked the aisle. He got right with the Lord. He surrendered everything to the Lord. Said, you can have my business. You can have my finances. You can have every dollar in my checkbook. You can have everything. Do you know what the Lord took away from him the next day? Nothing. The Lord wasn't asking him to give it up all that night. He was asking like he always asks for us to be willing to give it up. It's not your ability, as we heard from the missionary Brother Soul the other day. It's your availability. God asked Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and bring him to a high mountain and offer him up for a burnt offering on a, on a place that I will tell thee of. Can you imagine that? That would be the hardest thing in the entire world. How much we've talked about how difficult it was from Abraham to go from one place to the other, climb the mountain, have the conversation with Isaac, and Isaac's willingness to be offered as a sacrifice and being laid there on that altar, and God finally stopping it at the end. But here's what I want you to remember. God, Abraham, and Isaac, walk down the mountain together. 
God didn't take Isaac. He just wanted Abraham to be willing to surrender him. The old question or the statement that God is bloodthirsty. No, that's not it. Isaac was never offered on this altar. Abraham was. And from this moment on, you think about this now before we're done and we're finished right now. Because of this, according to the book of Romans, Abraham is called. There almost needs to be a drum roll, doesn't there? Abraham is called the friend of God. Not a whole lot of people called the friend of God. What I'm trying to say is this young person, old person, faculty member, preacher in the auditorium, professor, evangelist. What I'm trying to say is all God wants, all he's ever asked is for you to be willing to offer it. Are you willing? Or do you love it so much that you're going to roll over and go to sleep and never make the journey to the mountain? Do you think walking down that mountain that Abraham's faith in Almighty God was hurt by what the Lord asked him to do? Do you think he walks down that mountain saying, Boy, he really does love me. And he really does love Isaac. And Abraham then knew for sure there's nothing that he would fail to surrender to God. Never again would he question for a moment whether he loved God more than Sarah or whether he loved God more than Isaac. And from now on, he's the friend of God. Can I point this out and we're finished? When it's all said and done, Abraham did nothing but go on a three-day walk. The end of the story, that's all that happens here, isn't it? It's a three-day walk with his son and two servants. And yet he's called the friend of God. It wasn't what he did that made him the friend of God. It's what he was willing to do that made him the friend of God. And never forget this truth, Christian. Abraham and Isaac walked down the mountain together.